Today's guest is Reed Blackman, founder and CEO of Virtue Consultants, where he advises leading organizations on how to develop and implement AI ethics. A few topics we'll be diving into include Reed's experiences running a fireworks company, decisions to leave academia for industry, and Reed's experiences advising governments and corporations. Reed, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to dive into your background and learn more about the world of philosophy and ethical AI. Let's do it. So, Reed, my very first question for you is, so before your current focus on advising on ethical AI, you spent about a decade as a philosophy professor at Colgate. Looking at that, what sparked your initial interest in making a career in philosophy? Oh, in philosophy. My God. Okay, so let's see. I was obsessed with philosophy from the first semester of undergraduate. So 18, I'm a bit embarrassed to say that I was really into, in high school, I got into Ayn Rand. She's that sort of at least two threads of thought. I remember my Fountainhead days. Yes, exactly. I read Fountainhead. I thought Fountainhead was fucking awesome. I was 16, 17 yeah. in my defense. But, you know, there was some part of the philosophies that I liked, like the sort of self-sufficiency, independence kind of thing. Some stuff that I just didn't care about, like the screed against communism, I just didn't really get. But the point is that I thought that there was an interesting moral code to be had there about individual behavior. And then I got to college and I read some David Hume, it's a very famous philosopher, one of the big, probably top five philosophers of all time, David Hume. And he threw doubt onto the objectivity or the truth of any particular ethical claim. And it sort of threw me into a sort of an intellectual tailspin. Not emotional. Emotionally, I was fine. Emotionally, I was completely engaged and excited. Intellectually, I was like, what the hell? Right, what does make it the case that anyone is ever justified in making a particular ethical claim? And I didn't know the answer. And then I heard about challenges to free will. That got me deeper into it. And so then I just became obsessed with these kinds of questions and trying to figure it out. So by the time I was a senior in college, I had taken something like, I think I took 17 or 19 philosophy courses as an undergraduate. And then the question became, okay, do I pursue a career in this or do I go to law school? And I thought, oh, no, no, I'm so deep into this to not pursue a PhD. And at this point would be like defying my own identity, like something along those lines. So that's when I went all in. At what point in that journey did you start thinking about the implications for technical use across the society? Yeah, really, really late. Very, very late. So, I mean, I did, first of all, my dissertation and most of my publications when I was a professor were on very, very abstract issues. The analog of, say, theoretical physics as opposed to applied physics or something like that. I taught courses that in what philosophers call applied ethics. So I taught courses on environmental ethics and biomedical ethics. But AI ethics or tech ethics didn't do much of it at all. I just somehow became aware of it. I, it was sort of at some point in around 2017, 2018, it sort of was in the ether. And that's when I started paying attention to it. So I'd say like 2017, 2018 is when I started looking into it. But probably 2016, I had never heard of the term machine learning. Adam, at what point were you inspired to leave academia and start Virtue? It's sort of a weird story in some ways. When I was in graduate school, I started a fireworks wholesaling company. And the reason that's relevant is because it explains how I became a mentor to startups once I was a professor as part of the entrepreneurship organization at Colgate University. So, you know, that business, that fireworks business turned out to be surprisingly successful. It's still going on today, although thankfully I no longer run operations for it, but I did do that for 15 years. And so I was advising these students and looking around and seeing them doing cool and new and interesting stuff. And I thought, well, I want to do something cool and new and interesting. What would that be? Well, I don't want to leave philosophy or ethics in particular. So I guess it would have to be some kind of ethics consultancy. This was probably at this point, 10 to 15 years ago that I had this idea. I looked around. I didn't see a market for an ethics consultancy. I didn't see why anyone would buy the services. There was some stuff around biomedical ethics. 
but that's not what I really wanted to focus on. And so I just sort of sat on the idea for a while. I always had it in my head. And then a few things came up that made me think, oh, maybe there's a market for this after all. So first of all, there was the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, and then Cambridge Analytica. And at the same time, all the, you know, the big four consultancies and McKinsey, Deloitte, EY were coming out with these reports that the new workers want meaningful work. They don't want to work for companies that prioritize profits over people. And so I sort of had the thought, although I didn't put it exactly this way back then, that, okay, ethical risk is reputational risk. They able to get their ethical houses in order, especially with the power of social media, but they don't know how to get their ethical houses in order. They don't really know ethics, but I do. And so that's when I thought, okay, there's a real market for here, market for an ethicist or ethical services. And then you combine that with various kinds of social circumstances, you might say, or personal circumstances, like Colgate is upstate New York. My wife's career is Manhattan-based. In order to keep her career going, it made way more sense for us to live in New York City. And we live in Brooklyn. And we had a second kid on the way and the back and forth didn't make any sense anymore. And frankly, my two closest friends in the department got denied tenure. And so they left and I wasn't really close with anyone else in the department anymore. And I got tired of writing phenomenally obscure articles for phenomenally obscure journals. So everything just pointed to go start this business. It's time. Can you share a bit more about what some of your earliest projects were and how they've evolved over the past six years? One of my earliest projects actually came from a former student of mine. This was, when I started the business, it wasn't straight up tech ethics or it wasn't AI ethics in particular. It was just ethics writ large, including what I called at the time, and I guess I still call it, organizational ethics. So how do you make an organization ethically sound, independently of what product you happen to be building? Frankly, my rationale was, I don't really want to do the organizational ethics stuff because we know the answers. Don't sexually harass women. Don't discriminate against people of color. We know the answers. It's a matter of getting people to make sure that they don't do those kinds of things, which is a challenge, but it's not particularly intellectually challenging in the right sort of way for me. But I thought, okay, I'll get a reputation as a sort of the ethicist in business. And then when the AI stuff becomes online, so to speak, that's when I'll really turn my attention towards that. So one of my first clients was a former student of mine who started a company with, he and his two brothers started a company called Super Coffee. That's at least the brand name. You may have seen it around, a coffee drink with added protein. And they were about to raise their Series A. The CEO reached out to me, again, former student of mine, and said, hey, Reed, things are going great. We're about to close on our Series A. We're at 19 people right now. We have three women. The rest are dudes. We're about to hockey stick growth. Things are kind of screwed up, culturally speaking. Can you help us with that? And I said, yeah, sure. So that was my first client. So we did that work together. I worked with them for six months, nine months, something along those lines. Not full-time, but, you know, project-related. And it went really well. They really did experience all that hockey stick growth. And actually, we had an article published about the work that we did in the Wall Street Journal covering the kinds of things that we did. That was a great first client. My second client also is sort of a nice story. I was at a sustainability conference, and back then I didn't even know what sustainability meant. I just thought sustainability had to do with the environment. Now I know it's a much broader set of goals. And I met someone who does partnerships, or at the time he did partnerships for a tech firm in Seattle. And just turned out that they had a project that related to identifying the ethical risks of augmented reality. The idea generally was, okay, suppose we have an augmented reality platform and developers can build on top of that platform. What kinds of ethical risks do we need to think about in this context? And so I did a project around that, and that was really fun. That was a really cool project. And then it turns out, to make a long story short, that's how I met this guy, Brandon, who was the head of partnerships for this company called Artifact. And now he's my head of partnerships five or so years later. As you've narrowed down with your focus on the ethics of AI there, what were some of the ways you had to self-educate yourself on the technical details of machine learning in general? Yeah, I had to do a lot. I mean, for sure. Because I had never taken a course on artificial intelligence or machine learning or data science or anything of the sort, frankly. And so, yeah, it was just educating myself. 
luckily, I was a professor. I have a PhD in philosophy. Reading research articles is just what I had done for years, second age, decades. You know, a lot of people say, oh, what are you reading now, Read, And I'll tell them, I'm not reading, maybe I'll skim like an article in Wired Magazine or something like that, or The Verge or whatever they are. But no, I go to the research. I read the original research. And so when I need to understand what's going on with artificial intelligence or machine learning, I just went to the research articles. And, you know, one leads to another. You look at the footnotes. You're like, oh, that's really interesting. I don't, what's that? And, then, and I don't know the math. So whenever it came to the math stuff, I just skipped those bits. But I was looking to understand what machine learning is at the conceptual level. And at the end of the day, it's not that complicated. You know, then you come upon terms that you don't know. You Google them, watch YouTube videos. So it was a lot of self-education. And then, of course, just talking to people like, hey, you know, you're a machine learning person. I've got this question about model drift, you know, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. You mentioned David Hume earlier. Looking at a lot of the classic philosophers, do you think there's one particular school of thought that's most relevant to AI ethics and social considerations right now? No, I don't think so. I'm generally a fan, and I actually mentioned this in my book, that I don't think that we should be going around taking philosophical theories and sort of applying them to our ethical dilemmas, AI or otherwise. They weren't meant for that sort of thing. You've got utilitarianism and consequentialism and deontology and virtue ethics. Those are like scientific theories. You don't use Newtonian mechanics to figure out how you should hit the baseball. That's not what it's for. The theory is meant to explain how the universe or how a certain part of the world works, to make certain kinds of predictions about it. And similarly, ethical theories, they're meant to explain, if you like, the ethical parts of the world and make certain kinds of predictions, as it were, of the ethical parts of the world. Like, if you did this, then that, then that would be wrong. So ethical theories are just not meant to be the kinds of things that are deliberative guides. That's just not what they are. When you look at what counts as really good applied ethics, let's say you look at the articles, and I mean academic articles, about abortion or euthanasia or something like that, there's not a philosopher worth their salt that says, well, I'm a utilitarian and these would produce the best consequences, therefore, blah, blah, blah. That would be way too sophomore. That's what you'd expect from like a first semester, first year student. The way that these kinds of inquiries go is that you look at certain kinds of cases where everybody's agreed. Like here's a case of a woman who says she doesn't want to be treated anymore. She's a quadriplegic. She's dying. She doesn't want to receive treatment. The doctors take a tube and they force feed her food and medicine. And usually people are like, well, that's, no, she should be allowed to say, do not force feed me because she has a right to bodily self-determination. So then you take that kind of case and you compare it to a case of euthanasia and you start pointing out its similarities and dissimilarities. And in particular, what's morally similar and what's morally different about those two kinds of cases, refusal of treatment and physician-assisted suicide. That's how deliberation, ethical inquiry goes, not by way of appealing to these grand theories. Going back to the customer work at Virtue, when you're brought into an engagement to advise on different things. Which department or team do you generally start working with? Who's most outwardly interested in applied ethics? I'll say a couple of things. One thing to say is that the kind of careful ethical inquiry is not the kind of thing that most companies need to do, at least not out of the gate. Yes, they're going to encounter some gray areas, but most of the work that I do with clients is developing uh, you know, AI tool or AI product agnostic ethical, reputational, regulatory risk strategy across the enterprise, right? It's usually large enterprise. It's not that fine-grained stuff. Really, it's more about, hey, what are the guardrails here? What's the policy here? What are the associated procedures? What are the metrics for measuring all of this? What is training? What does learning and development look like? So that's one thing to note. In terms of who usually brings me and my team in, it's usually someone in the C-suite on the tech side of the house. So chief data officer, chief analytics officer, chief technology officer, information officer, chief information security officer in one case. It's usually not like legal, although legal is always involved and we want them to be involved. It's usually not risk and compliance, but we want them involved too. Once someone brings you in, 
Sounds like it begins hunting for different types of data and standard operating procedures, facilitating lots of different conversations. As you go through all of this, do you ever experience friction from the internal team as to what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish there? Not really. The answer is no. I mean, the thing is that if they're bringing somebody like me in, that means they've already got sufficient internal alignment that they're trying to accomplish something or other. So we're lucky in that. We're not usually fighting for relevance. And the truth is that we ask our clients, what are you trying to achieve here? Are you looking to be AI ethics best in class? Are you looking to like sort of skate by merely reg- current regulatory and legal compliance? Are you looking to be in the middle of the pack? And different clients say different things. Some of them are like, we just want to skate by regulations. If the auditors, if the regulators come knocking on our door, we want to be able to give them something that we're confident we're not going to get in trouble. That's some clients. Other clients are like, we want to be best in class. We want to be known for this. We want to be number one. And then what's funny is that I see organizations start off with one of those positions and then travel to the other one. So I've seen one organization say, we want to be best in class, blah, blah. And then we tell them, okay, here's what you would need to do in order to do that. And then they're like, okay, maybe not best in class, maybe <laughs> how about, you know, pretty good in class. And then I've also seen people who start off with, we just want to skate by regulations, really actually go all in and say, no, no, okay, you know what? Let's raise the standard as high as we can feasibly do. So I've seen it go both ways. Especially given the executive focus there as companies analyzing their investments into this, is there generally a financial metric attached to figuring out what the ROI is or is it actually more reputational? In my experience, it's been more reputational. I mean, I know that there are people who go around quantifying everything. I don't know. I don't do that. One of the people on my team is a cybersecurity strategist. He's been to lots of meetings where people try to put numbers around cybersecurity and try to put numbers on it, and that a lot of the numbers are just sort of made up to make people feel better. So people can do that if they want with the work that we do. I don't do that, though. I'll say one last thing. The truth is, for the kind of work that we do, I mean, governance, at least doing the design, is not in some sense that expensive for a large organization. So I'll sort of give you a sort of inside conversation that I had. I won't say who it was, but it was one of the big four, and I was talking to someone who was in charge of bringing in revenue for AI, like responsible AI consulting or AI ethics consultant. And they said, look, I don't really care about governance. For me, I want the models. What he wanted was for the bank, for instance, to give them all their models that they would do third-party validation of, right? They would do third-party auditing of all those models because that's where their money is. That's millions and millions and millions of dollars. If we're talking about designing an AI ethical risk program or AI governance program, responsible AI program, whatever you want to call it, it's not like it's $10, but for a large organization, it's not a crazy expense. But I do think there's a lot of downside of realizing an ethical risk is huge. Compared to what it costs to design such a program, it's not that much. You'll spend more money on software to implement the program than you will in designing it. Do you help design the software as well for the implementation side? No, we'll advise clients on software that might be appropriate for them. We'll help vet them. We'll advise on how to integrate that software into what they're trying to accomplish. But no, we don't want any conflicts of interest. We don't sell the software. We don't build software or anything like that. Looking at this past year, 2023 was definitely the year of Gen AI with getting mass market attention, and lots of people being very curious about different aspects of it. Given that public awareness, do you feel there's been a shift in the types of questions your clients are asking you and the requests that they're making? In some cases, yeah. So one, obviously, it led to more clients just because more people are taking the risk seriously and for good reason. I'll give you two examples. So one example is a Fortune 500 company who said to me, I actually quote them in an HBO article. There's nothing that's on fire right now. It's just that now we feel that everybody's holding a flamethrower. But they have more or less the time to devise carefully an enterprise-wide strategy, design the phases of rollout of that strategy, uh, designing the policy, blah, 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 blah. 
But another kind of client, not Fortune 500, but they have close to 70 point-of-care locations. So doctors and nurses and healthcare practitioners actually caring for patients. And their concerns are different because for them, we're pretty sure that there are healthcare practitioners consulting ChatGPT for, say, diagnoses. And we need a policy around this right now. We need procedures around this. We need to make it very clear to our people what they can and cannot do with, say, a ChatGPT, with a large language model. And so for them, at that sort of enterprise-wide strategy is not top of mind for them. It's either a fire or it's highly flammable and we need to get our hands around this right now. And so the way that we approach those clients, we have to, is completely different. But both of those things are examples in which generative AI changed the stance of those organizations in terms of how comfortable are you with the risk here? And the answer for both of them is not very, but how they go about solving for it, different. Using that fire and flamethrower analogy then, what would you say is the level of urgency you feel around this from your government clients? So I advise the Canadian government on their federal AI regulation. That's the only government client I have at the moment. They're working on their regulations. The EU AI Act was signed by all the member states literally just, what, a couple of hours ago, you know, to our talking right now. So Canada's working on their, call it their version of the AI Act. And so I would say it's not not urgent. I don't think that they're not running around <laughs> with their hair on fire. But yeah, I think they're taking it quite seriously. Are most companies drawing direction from government on this or largely trying to self create things? Yeah, the latter. I haven't had a single client say to me, hey, let's really pay close attention to Biden's executive act on this. They don't care. They want to know what are the laws on the books? What are the regulations that might be coming down the pike? And what are our own internal values and standards and risk appetites? And build to that. They're not looking to government unless it's actual regulation. So all the White House recommendations we can probably ignore until there's some teeth on it. I mean, yeah, one, there's no teeth because there's no enforcement mechanism. And two, if I recall correctly, it's just for other government entities. It's for, you know, how government agencies should use it. I don't work with a bunch of U.S. government agencies. And maybe if I did, they would say, okay, we need to make sure that we're compliant with Biden's executive order. That's just not sort of the area where I play. I Just that contingent reasons. I tend to work with larger international corporations as opposed to government, with the exception of Canada. With those international organizations you work with, have you seen differences in priorities based on the sovereignty of the company? I have some EU clients. They had a more mature, responsible AI program. This is like a year ago. Obviously, they were particularly sensitive to the EU AI Act, but that doesn't mean that they sort of designed their responsible AI program as just an EU AI Act compliance program. It was sort of, our standards are going to be higher than that, and we're going to have our own risk categories, but then we need a crosswalk for how our risk categories compare to the risk categories of the EU AI Act. So there was that sort of thing. Of course, one thing that they were doing is they wanted to make sure that whenever a model was getting created throughout the life cycle, that they were checking in particular to see if the model would fall under the high-risk category by the lights of the EUA Act. So that's the kind of thing that you see with EU clients that I don't see with US clients. That's just not top of mind for them. That's the big thing. I'm thinking of one in particular who said, the main thing that we need to make sure to do at a minimum is have everyone trained and vetted for assessing whether the model that they're working on is high risk by the lights of the EU AI Act regulation. You mentioned that uh, you have a cybersecurity specialization within virtue at this point. Yeah. How directly correlated do you think traditional cybersecurity tools and frameworks are for applying to ethical AI considerations? Well, my partner Matt would probably be better to answer that question. I mean, the idea is for some of the things that you're going to do with your responsible AI program, your AI ethics program, it has to be commensurate with how you treat data in the organization more broadly. And of course, who has a good grip on, who at least ought to have a good grip on how data flows through the organization 
It's going to be the cyber team. They should have some grip on who should have access, who ought not to have access, how are we making sure that the only people who do have access ought to have access. And so a lot of the work that we do generally is integrating an AI ethics program with other departments within the organization. So with risk, with compliance, with legal, with HR, with marketing, you know, we're trying to harmonize all of these things. But then there's a special emphasis put on harmonizing it with cyber programs. Looking at a broader current events, a really pressing thing, which I'm following really closely is the impact of how models are trained. Looking at the upcoming court case with the New York Times and OpenAI, largely lots of implications for copyright overall. Looking, which I'm sure we'll see a lot more cases for, what do you think are some of the ethical implications of that to consider and what organizations should be thinking about as they evaluate how and on what data their models are trained? It's hard for me to say. I mean, for one, I'm not a lawyer. I can't give you my legal analysis of it. From what I gather, I haven't heard anyone say, oh, this is a really strong case by the New York Times. Any lawyer say that? A lot of the copyright is, of course, around copying. And you're allowed to copy things. Google copies. In order for them to make an index of the internet, they have to copy stuff. But that's okay, because it's fair use. They're not using it to compete in the marketplace with those copies. Not directly. They're applying it for some novel use. And so it looks like Again, I'm sort of an outsider here. I have my podcast and I had someone who's an expert on copyright law and ethics on Darren Hicks. And he said, yeah, he thinks no way that these copyright lawsuits are ever going to win because they're making what's called incidental copies and they're not competing in the marketplace on the same thing. So he doesn't think that they'll win. Ethically, it's hard to say. I mean, I do think that there are definitely cases in which something unethical is going on. So for instance, if you've got an AI, let's say that there's image generation and there's well-known commercial artists who have a particular kind of style, and instead of hiring them, you just have the AI create an image in the style of and then insert famous commercial artist here. And it can do that very well, or at least well enough, so that now that person is out of a bunch of money. There's something problematic with that. There's something ethically shitty about that, to say the least. Because, I mean, you're talking about someone who devoted their career to making this art, trained to make this kind of art, practice, practice, et cetera, et cetera, then to become an actually successful artist. My God, what a hard thing to do. And then to have someone turn around and sort of steal their style that they worked on and then sell that style and make money on it for themselves. That seems like, I'm not exactly sure what word to use here. I guess I want to use the word exploited. If there's something exploitative about that, it's not illegal to steal a style. You know, my favorite example is Prince took his style in many respects from Jimi Hendrix, but he didn't do anything illegal in doing that. So style is one of these interesting things that you can steal, but there's no legal protections, although it is certainly ethically suspect. It'll be a fun case to watch for sure. The very last question I have for you, Reed, is given what you know and your opinions on it, how does that influence how you use AI tools in your own workflows, if at all? I don't use them at all. Everything that I do is my expert judgment honestly, right? The value that I provide to my clients along with my partners is we're experts in the field. We're, we're not average. We're not mediocre. We've dedicated our lives to this kind of thing. So I know my shit forwards and backwards. One of the things that's great about academia is that most academics, at least in the philosophical world, is that they're really rigorous and they have an intellectual conscience. You would never go give a talk where you don't know your stuff because the goal of the philosophy audience is to tear your argument limb from limb. It's to tear you apart. It's an intellectual blood sport, I like to say. And so it's ingrained in me that you don't talk about stuff you don't know what you're talking about. Right? So when you asked me about copyright, I said, well, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to give you my legal opinion on whether they're going to win or not. When I deliver things to clients, when I'm giving advice, it's the, ex it's the advice of an expert. 
And AI is not an expert at really anything. It's good at, you know, people like say, oh, it's good at providing first drafts. I don't need a first draft. I'm good. My first draft is going to be way better than your first draft. So I don't use it in my work because I don't need it. The other thing is that I write a lot and a lot of the stuff I do is writing and I don't need it to write. I want to write myself because I want to write in my style. And yeah. thankfully, it's not good at writing in my style at the moment. So I don't use it. I've used it for generating stories to tell my kids at night. But that I don't know if you want to call that part of my workflow. Put me on the wait list for the virtue bot at least one day. <laughs> Yeah, you're hereby on the wait list. Cool, Reed. Well, uh, thank you so, so much for sharing about your work and your story there. Really excited to see what you and your team work on for this coming year. Yeah, thanks so much, Jake. Really appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 